Welcome to Afternoon Light, the podcast of the Robert Menzies Institute at the University of Melbourne. I'm Georgina Downer and I'm the host of Afternoon Light. Each week I speak to leading thinkers from around the world about Robert Menzies, his life, his era and his enduring legacy. Hello and on today's episode of Afternoon Light, I'm talking to David Lee, who is Associate Professor in the School of Humanities and Social Sciences at the University of New South Wales in Canberra and is the author of many books, including his most recent one, John Curtin, which was published this year and we are going to talk about John Curtin. So welcome to Afternoon Light, David. Thank you very much for having me. It's a great pleasure and we are looking forward to you joining us for our second annual conference coming up shortly, so on a different topic, but it'll be good to continue conversations around Menzies and the Menzies era. John Curtin is considered by some in Australia as Australia's greatest Prime Minister. He was our 14th Prime Minister, not for very long, from only 1941 to 1945. He is quite a fascinating figure and I think Reading your book and doing further research on John Curtin, it's interesting his trajectory. It's complicated. He is complicated, brilliant but complicated. Can you tell me, David, about John Curtin as a boy, his childhood? Yeah, so Curtin was born in Creswick in Victoria in 1885. So he's born into the colony of Victoria before Federation. He comes from both Irish-born parents, Catholic, from a relatively poor family. So his father works in various jobs, including as a hotelier, as a barman in hotels. And the family moves around a bit, which means that Curtin's education was pretty patchy and the family's not well off. So the young John Curtin has to leave school fairly early. He hasn't had a really rounded education, but he makes up for that by being self-taught. He loves reading. He goes to the public libraries in Melbourne to read on all manner of things from literature to works of poetry. He's very interested in poetry, as some of his biographers have attested. And he becomes really an autodidact. He becomes a self-taught man, much like Ben Chifley, also self-taught and very much concerned with self-improvement. It's interesting. His parents came out, though, as regular migrants, did they, in the 19th century to Australia? They weren't? Correct. Yeah. And I found it interesting reading he was born in Creswick because the name was familiar to me as a town because it's where Bob Menzies' mother, Kate Menzies, was also born, and the Lindsay family of Norman Lindsay and Lionel Lindsay. So... Menzies often talks about Creswick as a sort of a place of note because he was so close to the Lindsays, but also obviously his mother was from there. So interesting formative experiences and how they all interconnect. Yeah, and so Curtin shares with Menzies, they're both Melburnians, they're both Victorians, they're both born before Federation. So they do have some similarities there. Menzies, of course, had the great advantage of a superb education at Melbourne University, where he becomes a prominent barrister in the 1920s. So he has a different trajectory than Curtin. Yeah, it's interesting, although both from fairly humble origins, Menzies getting access to a fantastic education, but really by virtue of his own hard work. So both have that hard work, that ethic of 
self-improvement. Why did John Curtin become so interested in socialist ideas and socialist values? Because that's coming out early on, isn't it, in his interests? Yeah, he gets that from his family background, but also from people he meets in Melbourne and some prominent names, probably the most prominent, Frank Anstey, who's first a local politician in the Victorian Legislative Assembly in the area from which Curtin comes. And later, he's a federal representative for Labor and later a minister himself. So Anstey is very influential. And one thing about Curtin that's a feature of his life is ability to attract patrons. So Anstey becomes one of his first patrons and guides the young man in the ways of the Labor Party and the ways of the trade union movement. There were others too. Tom Mann is a British socialist who has come to Australia and to Melbourne and he's another influential person for Curtin, as is another socialist called Frank Hyatt. So all these people give guidance to Curtin. He joins the Victorian Socialist Party and becomes a writer and a kind of boy orator too. He gets a reputation as a good speaker and starts writing for Labor Party newspapers fairly early in his youth. And when the First World War breaks out in 1914, he becomes engaged both in work for the Timber Workers Union and also in work against conscription. So these are very formative influences for the young John Curtin. And of course, debates that Menzies himself was involved in, although on the opposite side. So he is involved in socialist politics, but when does he actually join the Labor Party itself? Well, he joins the Labor Party early, so from the era of the First World War, before he's a member of the Labor Party, and he's working in the kind of leftist branch of the Labor Party in Victoria, influenced by these people, particularly Frank Anstey. And he does obviously have political aspirations from reasonably young age, doesn't he? So he has quite a few goes at politics. John Curtin is seen very much as a West Australian figure, but all this was happening early on in Melbourne. And I found it interesting that he ran for the seat of what's now Goldstein, Ballarat right. in 1914. So a pretty safe Liberal seat back then and was until very recently a safe Liberal seat. It was lost at the very recent election. Yep. He's running for office for the Labor Party, but not winning. He wasn't dissuaded, though. He had a lot of fire in his belly. <laughs> That's right. As you say, he stands for Balaclava against a guy called William Watt, who was a former Victorian Premier. He later becomes Treasurer in the government of Billy Hughes. And of course, Watt beats Curtin, but Curtin does pretty well. He edges up the Labor vote and he's regarded as having run a creditable campaign as a very young man in Balaclava. And he has other goes at standing for politics. The big move he makes is in 1917, he goes over to Perth to be the editor of one of the union movements and Labor Party's papers, the Australian Worker. And while he is in Perth, he has another go at standing for the seat of Perth, which he loses in 1919. Then he has a go at Fremantle in 1925 and loses before he actually wins in 1928 and 29. So he has a few goes at running for politics before he actually makes it. But his move to Perth really is in a way the making of Curtin because one thing it does is while he had been in Melbourne, he'd been drinking a lot and got in a very bad place. He had to go to dry out in 1916. He'd been jailed briefly for standing against 
a military call-out in advance of the conscription that Hughes wasn't actually able to introduce because he lost the referendum. So he was in a bit of a bad place personally. Then he goes over to Perth in 1917, becomes a successful editor of a Labor Party newspaper, marries, has two children, becomes a more settled family man. And then the difference between Western Australia and Victoria's is interesting too. Victoria didn't get its first majority Labor government until 1952. Wow. After Curtin's death. Yeah. Western Australia had its first majority Labor government in 1910. So he's moving over to a state where Labor is one of the parties of government at the local level. He's influenced by senior state Labor figures like fellow Victorian Philip Collier, who becomes Premier in 1924 and others. And this really is a good move for, for Curtin's life to go to Perth in 1917. His drinking is a feature of his life and probably contributes to his very, very early death at the age of just 60 in 1945, among other things. You say it sort of calms down when he marries his beloved wife, Elsie, yeah. but it rears its ugly head throughout his career, doesn't it? Mm, I mean, he never completely gives it up. And it's interesting thinking of important figures in history, how they can still be brilliant, but have a very difficult relationship with alcohol. I mean, you think about Winston Churchill, George W. Bush, he did become a teetotaler. Of course, Bob Hawke, famously, he did give up drinking when he became Prime Minister, of course. But it's a very invidious influence and obviously something that he found impossible to surmount in terms of ability to give it up for good. Yeah. And I think He breaks out when he goes, for example, he works on this Royal Commission on Child Endowment in the late 20s, which entails a lot of travel away from his family. And then when he goes to Canberra in 1928, 29, 30, 31, he's away from his family in Canberra, subject to the temptations of that capital. So yes, it's a demon that he has to struggle with, certainly throughout his life. And it's particularly accentuated when he's away from the family. Because he gets punished for it. His career is truncated or at least he has impediments in his career. He's sacked when he's drinking too much from various roles. Mm. So it's something that is hanging over him, isn't it? Yeah, because when he wins in 1928, he's elected to the Federal Executive of Caucus. He's in good standing. He's edited this paper for 10 years. He's worked for the union movement in various capacities. He's recognised as a coming man, but he's not elected to caucus because... Scullin, the new Prime Minister, and Ted Theodore, the Treasurer, decide not to back him. For various reasons, Scullin is unhappy about his drinking. So is Theodore. And Scullin's also a bit upset by Curtin becoming agnostic or perhaps atheist and renouncing his Catholic faith. But particularly the drinking is held against him. He's regarded as too close to Anstey, the radical firebrand from Melbourne, and as a bit doubtful because of his personal life, really. So he doesn't make it into the ministry, the Scullin ministry, which is a two-edged sword in one ways that counts against him, in other ways it helps him later because he's not associated with the splits in the Labor Party that occur at that time and he's able to be a, a neutral figure. How did his renunciation of his Catholic faith impact his political life? I mean, clearly not too negatively, given he's elected leader a few years later in 1935. But in a time when Australia would have been pretty religious, whether you were Protestant or Catholic, you would have been one of them. 
to be an Adam Proud atheist would have been quite unusual. I mean, I guess it would have suited the socialist branding, but it would have been quite curious. Yeah, I think it certainly counts against him with people like Scullin, perhaps with some other Catholics in Caucus. But as you say, Caucus, although it contains many Catholic, Irish Catholic sort of people, do vote for him to be leader in 1935. So it's something that he's able to get away with in the political environment of the 30s and 40s. So the leadership in 1935, so he's only been an MP since 1928 and then that was truncated, of course, because he loses in his seat of Fremantle in 1931 and then regains it in 34. So he's in and out of Parliament but really only had about seven years as an MP. But he wins the leadership amazingly in 1935. How did he do that? I mean, Bob Hawke also has an amazingly quick trajectory too. So it's possible, but how did he do that? So in the period from the Scullin government, which is 1929 to 31, he's a backbencher. He's not in the ministry and he is occasionally critical of the Scullin government for not being radical enough, not being interventionist enough. And he actually opposes what's called the Premier's Plan, which is the the Scullin government's plan to get out of the Depression. But the Labor Party, of course, splits in 1931 with the forces in New South Wales loyal to Jack Lang splitting off from the party. And so the Labor Party split down the middle, loses office, is devastated in the election of 1931. Curtin loses his seat. Chifley also loses the seat of Macquarie. Labor's in a very bad place. But... Yeah, three years later, he wins Fremantle back in 1934. Scullin retires a year later. And really, Curtin comes through the middle as someone that people can see as capable of uniting the disparate factions of the ALP. And Frank Ford was the establishment Labor candidate. He was loyal to Scullin. Scullin wanted him to win, but others saw no Curtin was a better bet. And they were right in that. He was a better bet as a leader because he was able to fairly quickly organise a reconciliation of the Lang forces back into the Federal Labor Party from 1936 onward. That unravels in 1940, but that's the sort of later episode. So he unites the party successfully by 1936. Is it something also about his personality and personal qualities? He obviously was a great orator and that's quite famous. He would just be able to give a speech without notes, completely off the cuff, and it would be a brilliant, rousing speech. So he obviously had an ability to inspire affection and good leadership qualities. But he was also quite conciliatory, wasn't he? He was good at that, bringing people together and, yeah. and building rapport. Of course, the relationship he builds with Menzies, who he couldn't have disagreed more with Menzies on so many things, but they had a good rapport. He's a friendly character, isn't he? He's quite personally popular. (laughs) Yeah, he has that talent or that knack to work with people from opposing factions or even, as you say, opposing sides of the political fence. He's a conciliator. He was, as you say, recognised as one of Parliament's best orators. Menzies comes into Parliament in 1934 So both of those people in the late 30s established themselves as really Parliament's finest orators. So these are really his qualities that help him and lead to him being a successful leader of the Labor Party from 1935 onward. 
What's his trajectory like then to the prime ministership in 1941? I mean, it's obviously Menzies becomes prime minister in 39. There's the declaration of war. Menzies is inviting, after the 1940 election, inviting Curtin to join this national government, which Curtin declines, and much to Menzies' chagrin. But Curtin's building a very strong opposition to Menzies' government, and it's obviously compelling in the end. (laughs) Menzies was such a towering figure and there was so much hope and in a wartime situation you would think people would not have wanted change, but they did. Curtin was presenting a change they found attractive to. The path to power was no sure run thing though. It's a bit like he improves Labor's position fairly gradually in 1937. They win two more seats after devastating losses in 1931 and 1934. And he's positioning Labor for a better showing in 1940 and perhaps being able to win government. But as you say, before that war breaks out, so that introduces a totally different environment and makes it very much more uncertain. And in 1940, Labor splits again. So in New South Wales, Labor splits three ways with some very left-wing forces, even the secret communists in one faction, then the Lang faction, which revolts against that faction and splits off from the Labor Party, and then the Federal Labor Party under Curtin. So really, if you look at that situation in early 1940, you wouldn't rate Curtin's chances of winning very highly, but he was able to pull it off and to, in 1940, almost win government. So the parliament is an equal balance between the UAP and the country party on one side and the Labor Party forces, which are fragmented at this stage on the other, and two independents in the middle. And those independents are conservative-leaning and they support Menzies continuing in power. So, well, the other thing about the 1940 election, of course, Curtin's campaigning all over Australia for Labor and then almost loses his own seat. Very narrow majority. It looked that he was gone for all money in the early stages of the count. But then because Curtin had promised higher pay for soldiers, the votes of soldiers came in late and put Curtin over the line in 1940. So there you have a situation where Curtin certainly hoped to win in 1940, didn't quite pull it off. And there's a hung parliament situation in 1940, after which then Menzies floats with Curtin the possibility of Curtin joining a national government. So Curtin says no, he refuses that overture. And I think the reason he refuses the overture is his dominant kind of political agenda is to keep the Labor Party united. And I think he realises that were he to join such a national government, all-party government, the Labor Party would fracture. And people like Jack Lang might even denounce him for doing that. So he refuses that overture, but he does suggest a different way of keeping or holding the political peace during the war, which is by an advisory war council consisting of all politicians to advise the government about matters concerning the war. And he does join that with other colleagues after the 1940 election. Do you think he was right to put his politics before the idea of the national government? I mean, would the national government have delivered something different from the Advisory War Council on reflection? Well, Menzies certainly wanted it because it would have given stability to his wartime government and it would have followed what the British were doing. They had national governments from the 1930s on and Churchill was leading a national government with Labor figures in it. So there's certainly a precedent at the British level for doing that. But the situation in Australia is a bit different. You've got Labor having suffered 
two devastating splits, one in 1916, which kept Labor out of power till 1929, and the other in 1931 over the depression policies. And Curtin was absolutely determined not to let Labor succumb to another split. And I think he was probably, we don't know for certain, but he was probably right that his joining such a government would have split Labor. And that was his dominant agenda, to keep Labor together. And it was a perennial issue, of course, even through the 50s, Labor kept splitting over yeah, the issue of that's communism right. and the that's right. place of socialism in their policies. Curtin, I think he's in a unique position as a representative of a Western Australian seat, the seat of Fremantle, looking at the war from that vantage point. Do you think he was able to appreciate the threats from Japan, the, the Pacific War was encroaching on Australian territory more and more. Do you think he appreciated those threats more than Menzies or is that too simplistic an analysis? I think both of those men appreciated the risk from Japan. Menzies was well aware of it, as was Curtin. Menzies, however, kept and supported the imperial defence strategy and was more prepared to commit Australian forces to the war against Germany. Dan was Curtin was more reserved about that because he worried about the Japanese threat. But Menzies did too. I think there were differences over defence policy. Basically, Labor wanted to concentrate on making more preparations, e.g. for the Australian Air Force, to ward against a threat from Japan. But it's not to say that Menzies was unaware of it. And one of the reasons Menzies goes to, to London in 1941, is to try and reinforce with Churchill the danger that Australia faces from Japan and to get Churchill to take more concerted action in relation to the Japanese threat. Because Menzies returns from his six-month trip to London, the US, Canada and other places pretty deflated and is losing support in his party and coalition and those two independents and then has to resign. And Curtin, after a very small interregnum, becomes the next Prime Minister. I mean, this is it because Menzies mishandled the politics or was the view he was mishandling Australia's response to the war? I think in hindsight, I mean, Menzies did an outstanding job in the early stages of the war in preparing the war effort, in managing the dispatch of expeditionary forces. And that's one of the reasons why Menzies holds power in 1940, because broadly the Australian people support that. And why Curtin almost loses his seat for having a more reserved policy in 1940. But I think Menzies does make some political errors, namely spending too much time overseas, too long a time overseas, at a time when his parliamentary majority is so precarious. So I think in hindsight, it would have been better for him to have spent more time at home and not to try and go for a second overseas visit, which he tries to make after coming home. Because, as you say, he's facing problems in his own backbench, in his own cabinet, and from elements of the media, which are turning against him, particularly in New South Wales. So I think those political misjudgments that lead to Menzies' political fall in 1941. Curtin makes a famous speech about Australia now needing to look to America. And it's often spoken of as the first steps towards the ANZUS alliance 
the United States, which isn't signed, of course, until 1951 by the Menzies government. But that was quite a a significant statement at the time. Australia was part of the British Empire. We were expecting the British to support us in Singapore and support us in our threats coming from Japan and elsewhere. So, you know, Curtin's coming out saying we now need to look to America. How was that received at the time? Well, it's a dramatic statement and it's dramatic in a lot of ways. It actually upsets Churchill and other members of his cabinet, upsets British loyalists in Australia as speaking out of turn, really. But it really exemplifies his wish to tell the Australian people the dire strategic predicament that they were in to make it very clear that Australia is facing a very uh, perilous moment in its history. It doesn't really presage continuing anti-Britishness because in many ways Curtin is later loyal to the British, for example, in appointing another British Governor-General from the Royal House to the Duke of Gloucester to be the Governor-General. In his visits to Britain, he wants to make clear Australia's continuing loyalty and attachment to Britain at a time when the ties of kinship and of trade were very, very strong. And for whatever help he wanted to get to from America, that help wasn't going to supplant those very firm linkages that Australia had with Britain in the Second World War and continue to have for many years after World War Two. Do you think the British felt Australia was less of a friend under Curtin, though? I mean, you say Churchill was very disappointed about this speech. Well, that's expected. But was there a sense more broadly that Britain was losing Australia? Churchill was certainly irritated. But at that stage, of course, Australia had three divisions in the Middle East which were fighting, which Menzies had dispatched there. And we had elements of our Air Force supporting the British Air Force. So Australia had been, under the Menzies government, a staunch ally of Britain at a time when France was knocked out of the war and America was neutral. But with the war against Japan in December 1941, this new situation where Australia felt itself to be in peril of invasion just as Britain had thought it in peril of invasion by Germany. Curtin just wanted to make clear that this was the situation Australia felt and it was looking for very strong action from its two major allies now, Britain and the USA. With the issue of conscription, this comes up again when Curtin's Prime Minister. So it's it's a massive issue in First World War. Curtin's very strongly against it conscription. Menzies is a university student, very strongly in favour of. But Curtin changes his mind in the Second World War. How does he justify that, given his such strongly held position 30 years before or 25 years before? Yes, so he's made this dramatic call to America for assistance, free of any pangs arising from Australia's traditional attachments to Britain. He is worried, as many Australians are, about the potential of a Japanese blockade or an invasion. The Americans enter the war in the Pacific and under conscription itself. So Americans are drafting people to fight for Australia in the Second World War. And Curtin forms a close relationship with General Douglas MacArthur, the Supreme Commander in the Southwest Pacific area. MacArthur requests conscription because there's this anomaly of an Australian imperial force that's volunteered to fight overseas and a militia which is only obligated to defend the Australian homeland. MacArthur asks for conscription and Curtin obliges by a kind of, not a full-fledged conscription, but a kind of 
agreement that Australian forces, whether in the AIF or the militia, will fight in the southwest Pacific area, including New Guinea and, and areas in that sphere. So it's a compromise. It's a very difficult compromise because politically Curtin has major enemies in his own party like Arthur Cornwall who are resisting that. But he's able to put it through conference and to get support for this compromise. I think looking back at it, certainly there was an anomaly if America had the draft and Australia doesn't and Australia is under, as Curtin says, threat of invasion from Japan. This was, I think, a reasonable compromise to make, although it wasn't probably strategically necessary because it turns out that the AIF uh, could manage the situation, the militia could manage the situation. It probably wasn't really necessary strategically, although politically there was a lot of motive for it. Was it unpopular in the public's eyes? I mean, obviously there were elements of the Labor Party who were very opposed to it, and there was criticism too that John Curtin himself hadn't served in the First World War, like Menzies hadn't served, Mm. and he was turning around and forcing young Australian men to go and serve in the Second World War against his previously strongly held position. What did the public think of this decision? The public were a bit divided. In some elements of the Labor Party, as I've said, there was strong opposition to it, but in Other parts of the Labor Party, there was support, obviously, because it got through conference. And certainly in the coalition parties, the UOP and the country party, they actually wanted to go further than Curtin went and criticised him for not doing that. So in general, I think that conscription that was adopted in World War II was accepted with relative equanimity. It wasn't accepted with equanimity in the Vietnam War in the 60s. Conscription for overseas service in Vietnam came to be much strongly resisted in the Vietnam War as it had been in the First World War. At Curtin had leader of the Labor Party, obviously caucus plays a pretty strong role in who he appoints to his cabinet and he doesn't have the liberty like a Liberal Prime Minister would have in selecting who's going to be part of that team. He is forced to appoint Eddie Ward who's a firebrand, mm. New South Wales MP, was he? New South Wales, I think. Yep. Firebrand, mm-hmm. New South Wales MP. He does not get on with, does he? And Eddie Ward Mm. creates quite a lot of problems for him and there's allegations that he personally contributed to a lot of industrial disruption in Australia during the Second World War, which led to the denial of essential supplies to forces that he was actually a pretty destructive figure for Australia's war effort, but also for John Curtin's mental health, physical health and prime ministership. Yeah, so as one of the reasons for Curtin's greatness, he's able to hold together a government and a caucus with people like Eddie Ward and Arthur Cornwall, who on occasions are vociferous critics and on occasions, as you say, are causing him major political trouble. So if you divide his government, you've got four very competent ministers. You've got Curtin, who becomes Minister for Defence also, like Menzies. You've got Chifley, who's Treasurer and Minister for Post-War Construction later, holding those two portfolios. You've got Herbert Evatt, who'd also been a thorn in Curtin's side in many respects, but who becomes a very indispensable minister. He's Attorney General and Minister for External Affairs. And also you've got John Beasley, Jack Beasley, a Langite, who had again been a problem for Curtin, but in wartime becomes a stalwart supporter. So you've got those sort of people and other able ministers like John Dedman, but you've got then other parts of his ministry who aren't particularly good, who've got their through seniority, and you've got others again like 
Eddie Ward particularly who are really problems for him. But Curtin's political success, one of the reasons for his political success, he's able to hold that government and that caucus together from 1941 to 43 in a divided parliament. And that means, of course, perhaps he should have done more to reprimand Eddie Ward over the Brisbane line incident where Ward was alleging that the Menzies government had a plan to forsake parts of Australia north of the Brisbane line in the event of invasion. Yes, perhaps a Curtin should have done more to reprimand him, but this has to be seen in the context of Curtin's overriding objective of keeping the party, the caucus and the government together in circumstances where in the two last major crises for Australia, Labor had failed catastrophically. From 1914 to 16, that government fell apart and Hughes was forced to form a national government. And in 1931, when the government again fell apart after only two years in holding office. So he manages to keep this rather disparate group of MPs and strong voices together through amazing talent for being conciliatory and putting up with very difficult and pretty destructive forces like Eddie Ward. But those strikes are persistent, aren't they, throughout Mm. the war effort? I mean, how much do they affect Australia's ability to mount a good defence and keep going with the war effort? Because it's pretty self-destructive and they're really very much communist-inspired, aren't they? And Eddie Ward is fermenting this. Well, the strikes had been a problem. They'd been a problem for Menzies too with coal problems in the coal industry being a problem for him too. And Curtin on the advisory war council had actually earned Menzies' approbation because Curtin had been constructive in trying to help Menzies to settle those strikes. After Curtin comes to government, by that stage, Russia is in the war because Germany has invaded the Soviet Union. Previously, yes, the Communist Party had been a major problem because they had been reluctant to do anything against Russia, which had been out of the war until mid-1941. But the strikes do continue in areas like the coal industry and the waterfront particularly. By this stage, though, the communist leadership was more inclined to be constructive because Russia is in the war and they don't want to do things that would impact adversely on the Soviet Union in its war against Germany. So, but in many cases, the rank and file, particularly in the coal industry, were determined to strike. And I think particularly in the coal industry, that reflects how that black coal industry in New South Wales, which was so important for Australia, was in many ways a basket case industrially and economically. And it was only really fixed after the Second World War by Chifley and by Menzies in the late 40s and 50s. So, Curtin is leading the government during the Second World War, but politics and democracy doesn't stop, I mean, as Menzies has experienced prior to him. But he does pretty well in the 1943 election, doesn't he? I mean, in fact, historically well. <laughs> doesn't yeah. he win the biggest majority in both houses ever in Australian political yeah. history? He wins an absolute landslide in 1943 and gains control of the Senate. And the UAP is pretty much decimated then, but for ceases to become a political force and pretty much faults after that, doesn't it? So it reflects both of those things. One, the UAP had disintegrated really as a political party, as a political force, and it needed major reconstruction into what eventually became the Liberal Party and many years hard work. And secondly, Curtin's 
popularity as a war leader where he had by this stage come to be seen as kind of politician above party as a national unifying figure. And many traditional liberal voters would say, well, I don't like Labor, I don't vote for them traditionally, but I'll vote for John Curtin. So he had that ability to attract not only Labor voters, but people from the other side to come over and support Labor in the 1943 election at that stage of the war. What did that result enable him to do then? Because that's a political gift to have a huge majority in both houses. You have an enormous mandate to do whatever you want, basically, or that you went to the election saying you'd do. Sure. It gave him much more legislative assurance. But if we go back to the hung parliament, Labor got a lot done in that hung parliament from 1941 to 1943 legislatively with the support of independence and even with the support of some of the opposition such as uniform income taxation, which is one of the landmark changes in kind of fiscal policy. Before that, there were state and federal income taxes, which was becoming a problem for war financing because you got a very confused uh, situation caused by state and Commonwealth both levying income tax. Labor was able to pass legislation for the Commonwealth to monopolise income taxation, and that lasts to this day. So they were able to achieve many things, including with use of the defence power, which gave governments a lot of extra leverage and authority. But with the 1943 election, they were able to more easily pass major legislation on banking and a whole range of other things in the period after 1943. What they didn't have was extra constitutional powers, which Labor strives to get in 1944, but Menzies and others successfully combat that objective to obtain quite sweeping new powers for the Commonwealth. Yes, referenda continue to deliver (laughs) as in Mm. not passing. So that 1944 referendum was no different than the most of the referenda we've had in Australia. Curtin dies at the age of 60 in 1945, still Prime Minister. He had experienced pretty poor health, talked about his drinking. He was incredibly stressed as any leader would be during the war. What were the major contributory factors to his demise? At 60 years old does not seem at all. No. Yeah, as you say, he'd always been a, of a frail disposition and nervy, a nervy man, a man who worried a lot, a man who was subject to stress. It didn't help that he'd had a drinking issue in his earlier life. He's also a heavy smoker, maybe in part to to relieve the stress, and he had heart problems. So he's not a well man, particularly from the late stages of 1944. And if you consider all the problems he had to confront, whether it's confronting Roosevelt and Churchill over withdrawing Australian divisions from the Middle East back to Australia, or whether it's from confrontations with caucus members who are accusing him of wanting to join and form a national government, or the fights over conscription, or the many fights that he had to conduct with a range of people. All this were factors which led to his premature death, as you say, at the age of 60. So when he dies, we're in the end stages of the war, but still at war. The nation is pretty mournful. I mean, it's a terribly, terribly sad thing to have your leader pass away. What were the reflections of his four years in office and his achievements? Yes. So when he dies, of course, this real sense of national mourning, there's a state funeral in Canberra and later in Perth where thousands of people line the path which takes him to a burial in Karakata 
Cemetery. His achievements, as you say, many people regard him as perhaps the greatest prime minister in Australian history. There's debate over that, of course. Why is he so highly regarded? I think it's because of the nature of the existential challenge he faced during the war, this major crisis that Australia has to navigate. But I think his big achievement is to bring Labor at the federal level from being really a basket case, which had broken in 1916, which had really been in office but not in power from 1929 to 1931 and split again, which looked being perhaps out of power for many years. He's able to bring Labor into government and to transform it into a governing party from 1941 to 1949. And as a governing party, it's able to implement many of the things that Curtin had for in his political life, particularly national control over finance, over banking, the beginnings of a more fully-fledged welfare state. I mean, Menzies had contributed to that as well, a more full-fledged welfare state. And Menzies helps him with, well, helps Labor with that in 46 by supporting a referendum on social welfare powers. The full employment policy, which both major political groupings follow after 1945, Uniform taxation, the Statute of Westminster, which gives independence to the Commonwealth legislature, a move in foreign policy to greater independence in things like Australia forming a treaty with New Zealand, the ANZAC Pact, and later its involvement in the United Nations. And also mutual aid with America. This is very important. Uh, Curtin forges a great partnership with MacArthur and that helps him to sign with America an agreement by which Australia gets aid from America, yeah, whether lend it's lease. military aid, Lend-Lease. And that enables Australia to come out of the Second World War economically in much better shape than the UK, which is a basket case, bankrupt after the Second World War. And it's very important if you consider the First World War situation where Australia had racked up so many debts that it really weighed down governments of both persuasions in the 20s and 30s. So this is very important for Australia in helping to create a modern economy and a revamped political system, which Chifley later continues to implement. And Menzies in many ways continues and develops further a lot of the things which have their beginnings in World War II. It's interesting your reflections on how important it was for the Labor Party that Curtin brought the disparate groups together and made it a party fit for government, that in four short years after his death, Labor's out of office and is out of office yep. until 1972, from 49 to yeah. 72. So, I mean, hypothetical, of course, but such was the influence of Curtin while he was alive, that he was able to do that and it lasted a bit after he passed. But those schisms were intractable through the 50s and really served Menzies a very easy, and not totally easy because there were some close run elections, but they certainly gave him the opposition you'd like to have, didn't they? <laughs> mm, yeah. That's right. And Chifley did win another election in 46 and his government from 1945 to 1949 was a very consequential one in many ways. But as you say, yeah, after 1949, Labor loses office. One of the reasons was bank nationalisation, which I don't think if Curtin, if he'd been alive, would have pursued. He would have been more politically savvy than that. So perhaps Labor would have kept together longer if Curtin had lived longer. But I think you're right, the disagreements in Labor were so intractable in the 1950s, I think they're really beyond the power of anyone to settle. 
Well, David Lee, thank you so much for this wonderful discussion on John Curtin, someone who all Australians should know something about. He was an incredibly influential figure in our history and his legacy lives on. We are a free country down to the efforts of people like Curtin. So it's wonderful to have your contribution to the study of Curtin in your monograph you published this year and really enjoyed the discussion. Thank you very much and I look forward to seeing you in Melbourne in a week's time. That's right. The Afternoon Light podcast is brought to you by the Robert Menzies Institute at the University of Melbourne. You can find more about the Institute and our podcast at robertmenziesinstitute.org.au. We're also on Twitter, on Facebook and LinkedIn. We look forward to you joining our show next week. Thank you.